Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. It's been a very exciting week. I read something very, very, very exciting in the bookseller. For anyone who missed it, Pandora has her first book coming out. Can you tell us a teensy bit about it? <laughs> yes, I can, Dolly. Like, I've now become like the Melvin Bragg of it's this teensy duo. Bit. <laughs> I'm, I'm going full culture show on you. It's a book of non-fiction essays about modern life and it's called How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? Initially, when I tweeted out the news, I got the title wrong. <laughs> and I realised an hour later, it? how do you know we're doing it right? <laughs> <laughs> it's out on the 9th of July next year. It's published by Hutchinson Books, an imprint of Penguin Random House. But you can pre-order it from Waterstones now and for one week only, I promise, I will include that link in the show notes. And the essays deal with womanhood, wellness, the internet, consumerism, fragility, resilience, individualism, and the pursuit of happiness. I am so excited to read it. Better you're not going to let me read it until full first draft is done, are you? You can read some. But I mean, in the same way that you're always nervous about me reading your stuff, I just don't know if it like makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually shout, yes, queen. When I saw the bookseller announcement. Can we just insert that video because you are Maura <laughs> in a silk kimono at a breakfast table desperately trying to be hip. Yes, queen. Yes, queen. Yes. Yes, queen. That's not quite Yes, queen. Okay, let's not, can we not do that anymore now? She'll get there. For anyone who doesn't know that reference, it's from Transparent. It's when the 70-year-old female protagonist, Maura, has just discovered yes, queen. <laughs> Can I ask, have you started writing it? Have you got a method planned? Are there any spider diagrams? And are you planning on buying a particular cardi to wear while you write it? Particular cardi. I don't think I've nailed my writing process yet. It's quite weird having the space to focus on something long form as I'm so used to like short form bashing things out. Yeah. So I've got this like surfeit of time that's meant to be filled, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I'm feeling a bit like floundery rather than because I'm used to my life being like, duh, duh, duh. Yeah. I would like a cardigan and a tin of desk sweeties. <laughs> but you tell you tell me that you'll get me these things, and then it will be like when you told me and CJ you'd make a potato sandwich. I will get you a special broken promises. I will get you a special little writers. I've got a, a, a superstitious cardi. Do you? So does my mum. My mum used to write as well, and I think I copied her. I've just got this thing that, like, if, if I put the cardi on, then the magic will happen. Does it? Never. Anyway, very exciting. Now time for some more breaking news. Ed Sheeran has been voted as having the most relatable celebrity body by men after research found that a third of men feel pressure to look a certain way. New statue Davio has been created as part of a wider playful campaign from Foster's Lager to help... <laughs> to help recarve society's expectations of male beauty. Davio's four metres tall and was created with input from men up and down the country who think a less ripped body, plumper stomach and love handles are all features that are more realistic and should be shown more in the media. Speaking of love, scientists revealed last week that fish are thrown into despair if they can't be with their chosen paramour. Sweet. Female cichlids, a small fish from South America, pine when they cannot be with their first choice mate and must instead endure a forced marriage to a lesser male. Does that make you want to weep a bit? Tell you what, it makes me want to not be a pescatarian anymore. Because of the cichlids. Yeah. Many thanks to our agent Grace O'Leary who tipped us off about a thoroughly high-low news story this week. A woman gave birth to a baby girl on board a commuter train travelling from Galway to Dublin. Two nurses and a GP who were travelling on the train assisted the woman with the delivery. 
Isn't that kind of amazing? The girl was born at around 5pm as the train was approaching Kildare. The company said that due to the unique nature of the delivery, they would be offering free travel for the baby girl until she is an adult. Now, here's a question. This got me thinking. If you could choose to give birth in any public space, that means that you would ensure a free product for life, where would it be? British Airways first class lounge yeah what about you Wagamama yeah that doesn't surprise me for a second eight hospitals so far have announced they have been affected by the Listeria outbreak with five patients dying after eating sandwiches and salads provided by the good food chain and Richard Ratcliffe has joined his wife Nazan and Zagari Ratcliffe in her third hunger strike Richard is currently camping outside the Iranian embassy in support of his wife, an aid worker who's been held in Iran for over three years, accused of planning to topple the Iranian government. You may remember Bojo's blundered attempts to get her released when he was foreign secretary. Jeremy Hunt, who vowed last year to do everything he could to get Nazanin released, met with Richard last Thursday and later tweeted, do the right thing, show the world your humanity and let this innocent woman home. Hashtag free Nazanin. To give Jeremy Hunt his due, he's really lent his full weight to this, but sadly doesn't seem to be working. Richard reports that Nazanin is in increasing distress and her daughter Gabriella is growing up without her. And another serious story that I wanted to draw attention to, which I had not heard about until Keenan Malik wrote about it this weekend, is the case of Pierre Klemp, a ship captain who's facing 20 years in prison for rescuing migrants in distress in the Mediterranean. Her case is similar to that of the college lecturer Scott Daniel Warren, who was accused of conspiracy to transport and harbour migrants after providing them with food and shelter. The week before last in Arizona, a jury was unable to find a verdict, but he could still face 20 years in jail if there is a reason trial it's absolutely unthinkable to me that when Pierre saw people drowning she rescued them and could now face 20 years mm. in prison to quote Keenan Malik they are the latest victims of a disturbing trend that has gone almost unnoticed and I really think it has I hadn't heard about this story before the threat by the authorities on both sides of the Atlantic to put on trial anyone who provides rescue or humanitarian help for migrants An inspiring story came from Orkney this week, where a Great Britain Paralympic climber became the first blind man to lead an ascent of the old man of Hoy. 33-year-old Jesse Dufton laid his own route by feeling his way up. He was followed on the seven-hour climb by his sighted partner, Molly Thompson. And as everyone knows, I'm a huge Orkney fan. And the old man of Hoy is an enormous sea stack. So I just think it's amazing that he's done that. And in more trivial news, Kylie Jenner's in trouble for hosting a Handmaid's Tale party with cocktails including Praise Be Vodka and Under His Eye Tequila. And Misguided have released a one-pound string bikini made entirely of plastic, which of course sold out immediately. And there's news from Mallory Towers. Mallory Towers will be welcoming its first black pupil in a new story commissioned by the publishers of Enid Blyton's still popular novels. The book will be set in the same 1940s precinct as the originals and the author Patrice Lawrence says that the inclusion of Marietta isn't anachronistic as there were many children from the Commonwealth at English boarding schools at this time. I felt quite infuriated uh, that that statement even had to be made somewhat preemptively or defensively. I actually saw on Twitter this week that the actor Susan Wacoma was having to deal with a load of shite from total fucking twits online because she is starring in a new Channel 4 detective sitcom which is set in Victorian times called Year of the Rabbit and uh, some people were saying that there were no black people in Victorian times therefore her casting was political correctness gone mad. The producer Hannah Mackay tweeted, Susan is one of the best actors of her generation, plus she's endlessly kind and funny and clever. The way she deals with this utter, utter cockfuckery is heroic, but I'm embarrassed she has to. It's shambolic. On the question of political correctness versus historical accuracy, anyone who's read a single book about the East End in the 1880s would know that it was probably the most diverse period and place in British history. We only recognise the past through culture, which is why our impressions thereof are so mangled, by which she means we only recognise the past by the lies in culture that have that we've been told and that have been depicted. Anyway, I hope that we continue moving forward culturally to unmangle our understanding of the past and the truth of its diversity. Love the word cockfuckery. Good word, isn't it? Stealing that stat. What's in the mailbag this week? Lots of emails in response to the euthanasia discussion in last week's episode. The majority were actually from our Australian listeners as new legislation comes into effect in Victoria. 
A palliative care nurse who works in Victoria shared these thoughts. I've been nursing for over 14 years and have worked in Belgium where euthanasia was in full effect and even still I've been reflecting on the moral and ethical dilemma as we stare down the barrel of new legislation. I wanted to clarify that the statistic of people who died under palliative care, 32,000 as you read out from The Guardian, is far more nuanced than the article stated. As terminally ill patients near to end of life, they naturally stop eating and begin sleeping more as their bodies shut down, leading to death. This is where the skill of palliative care teams come into play. For example, opiates for pain and benzodiazepines for restlessness. It is a fallacy to say that the medication itself causes the death and not indeed the terminal illness itself. These medications can provide both the patient and family with a death that is pain-free and peaceful, and I do not want this to be confused with euthanasia. Which, more and more, I am of the opinion that if the same money was put into palliative care that gets put into physician-assisted death or euthanasia, one could argue the latter wouldn't be needed at all. I think that's such a good uh, point. Thank you so much for writing in. We also had an email from someone who works at Dignity in Dying, the assisted dying campaigning organisation. I speak to people every day who are contemplating their imminent and inevitable death. People with advanced cancer who are allergic to opioids so will likely die in agony. People with motor neuron disease whose ability to breathe, move, swallow and communicate will diminish so far that they will end up completely locked in their own body and probably choke or suffocate to death. I campaign for a change in the law on assisted dying in the UK focused on allowing terminally ill, mentally competent adults in their final months to die on their own terms a change that over 80% of the British public is on board with, according to consistent polling. Quite distinct from the laws in the Netherlands, the law we propose would allow only dying adults of sound mind. Two doctors and a High Court judge would need to confirm that eligibility criteria were met. It differs from euthanasia in that an individual is in control of the process from start to finish as they must swallow or inject the medication rather than a third party administering it, an important safeguard against abuse. The model is based on Oregon's law, which has been in place for 20 years and since extended to several other US states and Victoria and Australia. Just yesterday, the state of Maine also voted to introduce such a law. In the US, there have been no proven cases of abuse or coercion and no slippery slope widening of the original eligibility criteria. I think that actually would um, erase what my biggest fears were when we were talking about euthanasia last week, is that um, how if someone's not of a sound mind, how on earth do you determine that they have agency over their yeah. own death? And also um, that there is no room for abuse because you administer it yourself because yeah. I'm still I'm tormented by that case that's being tried about the woman who had a lethal injection administered to her against her own will. We also had a lot of emails from listeners about Pride Month and the horrific story of the lesbian couple who were beaten on the top of the London bus in an act of hate crime. For anyone who hasn't seen, Chris, one of the women beaten up on the London bus, who has chosen not to reveal her surname, has written an op-ed for The Guardian about how their case saw more visibility because they're white, cisgender and conventionally attractive and she calls for more empathy across the grid for homophobic attacks and I'll link to that in the show notes as it's a really brilliant piece. Uh, Here's the letter. Something my girlfriend and I have experienced even more frequently than sexualization is the subtle, often inadvertent ways that our relationship is routinely dismissed and undermined. I can't tell you the number of times that my girlfriend and I have been asked if we're sisters or the male ex-flatmate who moved into our flat and lived with us for a month before he realized we were in fact a couple sharing a room. There's an expectation when we go on family holidays that we'll be okay with twin beds while other straight couples in the family are given double. There's this definite sense that you get as a lesbian couple, whether it's intentional or not, that our relationship just aren't seen as serious adult relationships. Thank you so much for that email. It's such an important part of um, making this show for Pandora and I. We really appreciate them. Thank you. Pandora, what have you been enjoying this week? I read a brilliant, moving and frankly absurd caper of a book over the weekend that I found on my sister's bookshelf called All Families Are Psychotic by Douglas Coupland. It tells the story of Janet, her ex-husband Ted and their three adult children who have come together in Florida to watch their daughter Sarah go into space with NASA. But the family are fraught with issues. Wade has HIV, which his mother Janet contracted when Ted shot Wade because he slept with his second wife and the bullet went through Wade and into Janet. Brian's, Bloody hell. Brian's girlfriend, Shaw, 
it's not Godnay, is trying to sell their unborn child, while Sarah wants to be the first astronaut to conceive in space. I had never heard of Douglas Coupland, a Canadian author who's very well established. Um, And from what I can see, this book, which came out in 2002, wasn't hugely well reviewed, but I loved it, even as it got increasingly absurdist. At one point, Wade and Janet end up in a swamp, handcuffed. To one another but I found that there were a lot of very observant truths about family life I think you'd love it Dolly actually I just yeah. gulped it down in um, a night and it was such a just different read to the kind of thing I'm used to reading I just wanted to read out this scene between Janet and her ex-husband Ted who are having a rare moment of cordiality because it has this pitch perfect pattern and rhythm and humour between two people who once loved each other very much and now have enough indifference to be truly honest about their marriage Did you ever cheat on me? No, but I would have, with Bob, your old tax guy, the night of the party and your brouhaha with Wade on the lawn. I was that close. What a disaster that night was. I cried the next day on the tennis court bench. God, I'm sorry. You should have gone for it. You can't be serious. I am. A fling would have been fun for you. You're right. It would have been. Hey, did you know about my drug problem? Your drug problem? In the early 80s. Coke. By the shovel. Janet sighed. I'm such a dumb bunny at figuring out this kind of thing, Ted. That's probably why you got away with so much. Pretty much. Janet added two and two. That's where our stock money went. It wasn't the 1987 market crash at all. Bingo. Sorry. Janet sighed. Ancient history. The reason I'm not so much of a shit right now is because I'm not doing drugs. For one thing, I couldn't afford it. And second, I want to die clean. How's that for sappy? Um, and it's just... it. It's... I don't know. It's such a... I love that dialogue. Yeah, it's such a um, satisfying yeah. book. Um, yeah. But it does get very strange. And it sounds very um, compelling, the plot. <laughs> I mean, I think some of the reviews were that there is maybe a little t- bit too much going on. <laughs> Do you know what, though? I think about this increasingly. I don't have... I don't need my stories in culture to be realistic. I don't. It's not something that I demand of, of the art that I ingest. I think really that's probably why I found that book so unusual. Mm. Actually, you particularly like books that have that absurdist quality. Yeah, I do. That magical, mystical, because you loved Pisces. Yeah, I just think that, you know, this reality is so grim and unsatisfying in so many ways. I don't mind when I'm watching a TV show or watching a film or reading a book where it's, you know, it swells and inflates to a place that feels like not entirely earthly and realistic I don't mind I also loved dipping in and out of Busy Phillips's book This Will Only Hurt a Little it is ruthlessly honest and very funny and really painful at times the recurring motif is that she is in every single job asked to lose weight I I mean it's absolutely bonkers when you read this book she is constantly dropped for for weighing too much it's it's actually bizarre to read. Um, the thing I found so disturbing about her description of it, I heard her in an interview talk about it, is that there was a period where after her baby, she was the breadwinner. She was the person bringing in the income to keep her family afloat. And it was so strange for her to know. And she was told that she was dropped from a job because she hadn't lost her baby weight quick enough. And it was it must be such a weird existential head fuck to to know that the only way that you can provide for your family is by being a certain weight it's so weird and it's it seems to be the hinge on everything um it's an absolute must read for dawson's creek fans as she is just so honest about people uh chad michael murray she says is like the guy at school who carries a guitar to make him seem deeper <laughs> joshua jackson she said uh was a mansplainer before it was invented and he made every conversation into a dissertation that's so funny heath and michelle heath ledger and michelle williams she's just lovely about mm. and it's actually really um nostalgic and thrilling to read such a lovely description because she's best friends with michelle so i'm sure that yeah. she read the book before but heath comes across really really well um she's brilliantly brave and forthright as she should be on being axed as a producer credit on blades of glory which is the 2007 film that she was she was a producer on craig and she talks at length about craig and brian cox who were the producers on it and they come across like very badly and she talks extensively about how when she had her baby her husband was useless and she wanted to divorce him um 
and they're in a great place now but like she really doesn't Hold leave that. and yeah. no and it's it's just um it's amazing and it's so readable and you can dip in and out of different bits which is what I did um, so I thoroughly enjoyed that something else I really enjoyed which Dolly I think will find fascinating is Emily Gould who wrote Friendship which I loved a couple of years ago I think wasn't it she I found a long form piece she wrote for the New York Times in 2008 called Exposure I've got no idea how I found this sincere apologies if I've forgotten to thank whoever brought it to my attention I think this could have been one of those times when I find things by just noodling around on the internet looking yeah. for like themes or writers work this piece is about what it was like to work in the advent of the tell-all internet age as an editor for Gawker, which is a now defunct gossip website in the US for anyone unfamiliar. She was hired in her early 20s and her relative inexperience was a help, not a hindrance, because it allowed Gawker editors to be sort of sacrificed where needed because they came very close to the line and got sued. I mean, ultimately, that's why the whole website got set. Uh, shut down and Emily writes how she grew increasingly uncomfortable and actually unwell by this kind of exposure this exposing of herself and exposing of others by revealing my flaws to whoever wanted to look I thought incorrectly as it turned out that I was inoculating myself against the criticism my Gawker co-workers and I leveled most often maybe I was talentless bad complected old looking and slutty but no one could call me a hypocrite I'd said that everyone was subject to judgment and scrutiny, and then by judging and scrutinising myself relentlessly, I'd invited others to do the same. Mm. Uh, it's a really, really honest piece about how naive I think we were with the internet at the beginning, mm. and how she lost relationships and a sense of self in the writing that she used to uh, commit to the internet. I interviewed her for a piece a while back about uh, the dangers of dubbing young first-person female writers voices of a generation um, and the kind of poison chalice that that can bring and she was just so eloquent I think she must have done a lot of therapy and a lot of reflecting on that period of her life and where it led her to and, and how it kind of fragmented and um, augmented her sense of self because she's it really does feel like she's someone who went through that kind of first round online of these kind of young female writers who had these public personas and offered up um you know various parts of themselves in their personal life um as their work and was kind of broken down by it and then has rebuilt herself and rebuilt herself as a different writer i just uh, i think her insights are riveting on the subject i went back and watched an interview that she did on jimmy kimmel in 2007 which, which she was torn apart And that's for. a big part of this piece. Yeah. Um, it was on a segment on Gawker called The Gawker Stalker, where people sent in pictures um, of celebrities they'd seen on the street. And their lawyers would argue that actually this was often in real time and they'd have to be escorted, escorted out of a space. And there's a bit where she says that you then see in the piece she does not agree with, where Jimmy Kimmel, who's quite angry because he's been on Gawker Stalker, mm. and Emily says, um, and he says, you know, what about people's privacy? And she was like, what privacy? They've got loads of money. Why do they need privacy? And I think that's such an interesting indication of how we have at least changed slightly positively in our cultural dialogue that the the rabid paparazzi is no longer seen as okay just because a mm. like a celebrity is not insulated by money. But I also think that's indicative of just like growing up. A very young person <laughs> yeah. who has who's lacking in empathy as a lot of young people are. Like I think I would have said something quite idiotic. Well, she like was that just desperate past. to be seen at that time in her life. So yeah. to her something like Gawker Stalker, she's like, why would you not want to be on it? Why yeah. wouldn't you want everyone talking about totally. you, everyone looking at you? You know, yeah. you can see that she's so like amped up on this visibility which is why the title of the piece exposure is so apt it's a really enjoyable honest piece that will be in the show notes and lastly i also thoroughly enjoyed and had some real pause for thought reading rebecca lou um who wrote a piece for an online film journal called another gaze on the limitations of what we've come to define as the millennial woman on screen and in literature we are now supposedly in the era of the unlikable woman, she writes, which means that we celebrate that women too can be dirty, repulsive, mean, cruel and flawed. 
Fleabag lives fast and loose and leaves behind a trail of broken hearts. One of the major revelations around Cat Person concerns the protagonist's deep ambivalence, even pity, for her middling one-night stand. I understand that the rise of the unlikable woman is a victory. The one-dimensional figures of the past, who could only either be adored or reviled by men, have been replaced by complex female characters, quote-unquote, who are able to unapologetically reject plight sociality. This can be powerful, but the praise that surrounds such figures also risks producing a premature celebration, a divestment of power that leaves us happy to pick at the scraps and inoculate ourselves against the harder, messier mission of getting to a point where unlikability is no longer a one-note punchline. It's rarely asked to whom these women are cruel, what engineered this cruelty, and what ends this cruelty serves. To do so might chip away at the unitary image of womanhood that so many discussions of the millennial woman prop up uncritically. Fascinating writing. It's a brilliant academic piece yeah, of writing. That's I'm, fascinating. I'm too. such a fan of Rebecca Lou's writing. She elevates anything she writes about. I really enjoyed something she wrote for Galdem last year about how influencer culture plays on women's vulnerabilities. And yeah, Dolly, you'll love that. Because piece. that actually articulates something that I that has been stressing me out a bit in the last year that I haven't been able to put my finger on and it's exactly what she just described and actually Lauren my writing partner and I came out of a meeting about a script um in the last year and Lauren said I do worry about this like quite reductive fetishization now of the unlikable female character in a script because it feels first of all as as it's one cliche to another yeah as binary and as she articulates within that those kind of acts of uh, cruelty or malice which I agree you know it's cathartic to see that on screen and it is a representation of the many you know personalities of a woman that should that exist in real life and should exist on screen but what it what it fails to what it can fail to examine is how that has become a reality so it's not a feminist act just to have like a woman behaving badly on screen. Yeah. And also she says why, you know, a lot of these women are white and middle class and fairly privileged and they are kind of unhappy and um, unlikable in spite of their privilege. Their sort of privilege is dismissed because it can't make them happy. Mm. And she's like, we really need to look at why the fact that these women have been arguably elevated into one of the most powerful positions in society, they still feel so powerless. Mm. And that humbled me, I think, in the weight of what she's asking, because that is so incredibly true um, about so many women I know who have... um, And actually, this is something that I really want to get to the crux of in my book. You know, we have the tools at our disposal, but we are seemingly lost Mm -hmm. at how to use them. Mm. Um, And... It's just such a good, critical piece of writing. And also, I think something that I've had to accept when around conversations around my book and criticisms about my book is that we're okay now with a certain type of woman transgressing. So it's fine if a posh white woman or um, a kind of metropolitan, upwardly mobile woman is having lots of dirty sex, spending her money irresponsibly, uh, drinking to the point of blackout, experimenting with drugs. But how would we feel about impoverished women or women of colour doing that? Yeah. You know, it's com- yeah. it's completely, completely different. And-, and I think that's what Rebecca Lou says is that, like, these are stories worth telling, but it's like actually what you were saying about the voice of to the generation. Fleabag does not define an entire generation no she's one woman like mm. a, a strong trope mm. in a generation but it's just dangerous when we it's just, it's just dangerous when anyone gets elevated into a like a sort of poster girl for a, an entire swathe of entirely different people yeah and it now just makes me nervous you know there was a, when I when Fleabag knocked that second series out of the park and it was episode after episode it just got better and better and better and better I felt joy for Phoebe Waller-Bridge and I did feel an increasing sense of fear for her the more we elevate this woman the potentially because you've just seen this happen over and over again with female auteurs that I love the more likely it is that we are going to revel in ripping her apart and I just really hope that doesn't come I really really hope that this incredible artist who I'm sure will have will make mistakes or will say the wrong thing or uh, will create art that's not as universal or satisfying as that particular piece. I hope that this is an example of someone we continue to listen to and embrace and celebrate um, without 
eviscerating. I think she's being so careful to avoid all those pitfalls, namely social media. So I think she's got the best chance of avoiding that Mm. trajectory, as you say, that we do see so often in popular culture. But how sad is that, that a woman has to do that? A woman has to be so strategic in the wake of much-earned success to make sure the tide doesn't turn violently in a way that I just don't think men have to consider. Support for the Hyla comes from Regenerate Enamel Science. Regenerate Enamel Science is the first system that can regenerate tooth enamel mineral. 80% of common teeth problems such as sensitivity and yellowing can be caused by enamel erosion and acid attacks. And one of the major misconceptions is that erosion occurs only due to unhealthy diets such as sugary drinks and junk food. In fact, even fruit can cause acid erosion. Years of research in Regenerate Enamel Science laboratories has resulted in a three-step oral care regime consisting of an advanced toothpaste, advanced enamel serum and advanced foaming mouthwash. So snazzy, that serum for your teeth. The packaging of it is very snazzy as well. Designed to reverse the early enamel erosion process, Regenerate restores your Nash's mineral content and micro-hardness. For many of us, a lot of effort goes into our beauty regimes for hair and skin, but not so much for our teeth. I'm obsessed with teeth. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't, but now I do. And now everyone else can love their teeth too, Pandora. Just head down to a local boot store to discover Regenerate Enamel Science and the power behind healthy-looking teeth. It's our favourite toothpaste for ensuring that our gnashes look healthy and fresh. To learn more about the science, please visit regeneratenr5.co.uk. Thank you very much to Regenerate Enamel Science for supporting our podcast and helping our smiles dazzle. What have you been enjoying this week, doll? As mentioned in last week's episode, I've been reading Sloane Crosley's new essay collection, Look Alive Out There, and it is so, so, so funny and at times painful and I think it's the most engaging essay collection I've read in years. So far I have loved the essay on personality quizzes and people who become obsessed with personality quizzes. Oh my god I want to read and wish I'd written that essay. It's really Sounds good. amazing. Because when I say essay it's more like it's more like real life it's quite novelistic it's like real life short stories dispatches precisely and then and then she sometimes brings in something universal she's just I cannot explain how sophisticated her writing is and in this book until you read it it's really really impressive I also loved the story of her pursuit of a quiet place for her to write which led her to an isolated Californian riverside holiday home that's so mean that's like the mountains in Utah (laughs) I know and how she befriended her eccentric neighbours I loved the essay about her walk on one line part playing herself in an episode of Gossip Girl I remember that (laughs) it's really really good that story and generally looking at the kind of machinations of a very glossy TV set and how it all works behind the scenes and the kind of hierarchy system of the extras and the stars and the crew it's very very funny but my favorite uh chapter that i've read so far is the first story about her rich teenage neighbors who are incredibly loud and make her life miserable uh in manhattan and how she becomes completely and utterly obsessed by them and the essay is a kind of larger examination on her saying goodbye to her youth and it just has these moments that hit you Uh, and really wind you in amongst all this kind of mad, quite eccentric, quite Sidaris-esque kind of personal obsession. It's just very mournful and uh, meditative. I loved it. That sounds like you could have written that. I can imagine you getting (laughs) obsessed with your loud... I am obsessed. Your loud, rich neighbours. I can imagine you being in pursuit of a quiet place. I can definitely imagine you writing about personality quizzes. The only thing I don't think you'd have done is the walk-on part on Gossip Girl because you hate yourself on film. There's still time. Um, Yeah, I have got a neighbour who I have this ongoing war with and it's been like really upsetting and has made me go slightly insane over the last couple of years so I really understood and I think everyone has had that experience what happens if your neighbour listens to the high though well he can fucking come round and (laughs) apologise because he owes me so many apologies anyway I'm not going to make this about my own domestic issues but I think everyone has had that um, experience with a neighbour who, where you feel like you're really being tormented and your space of safety and sanctuary suddenly feels like it's really under threat and she just 
deals with it. It's a very, uh, you know, it's very much an urban issue of our time, I think. Uh, and she deals with it in such a brilliant way. So I love that. I can't wait to read that. I actually don't know if I can wait till you've finished it because I know you'll forget it next week and I'll have got all excited. I promise I'll bring it next week. Okay. I enjoyed Charlotte Church on Adam Buxton's God, podcast. Blast from the past. I know. And I love that she admits in the interview that she direct messaged Adam and specifically asked to come on the podcast. <laughs> uh, in the conversation, she talks about her former life as a child star. And I think as well, we'd for- we, I'd forgotten, certainly, the magnitude of her stardom when Huge. she was 12. Yeah. Um, and she talks about what that did to her temperament as a teenager, the effect that it had on her family, who were a very normal working class family from Wales, what it was like for them being thrown into the most extreme and unearthly of environments. And these kind of mad stories about them at kind of, you know, having party, ending up at a party at Bob with Barbara Streisand. And it just, it's amazing that she has come out the other side as as down to earth and sane as she is and actually it really debunked a lot of the kind of tabloid myths that I remember reading about her in Heat magazine or whatever when I was a teenager which I I think she managed to even though there were parts of her who got that got whipped up by the stardom and the celebrity thing I remember the impression that I got was that she was kind of out of control and you know, you know, falling out of parties and falling out of cabs. And actually what she says in the interview is she was just in Wales the whole time, just getting pissed with her mates. And I remember she got married quite young and had children quite young. So I actually think she managed, probably by dint of having this very solid, happy family unit, I think she managed to avoid coming apart in the way that so many other young celebrities of that time did. Totally. I also loved hearing more about her move away from the spotlight and to a simpler way of life. She talks about how she's thrown away her smartphone and um, bought a Nokia 3210. She's become very politically engaged. She herself admits that she's gravitated towards more of a sort of sharing economy, commune style existence. And uh, now she's starting a school founded on the principles of democratic teaching. Uh, which Adam Buxton sounds quite wary of. What's democratic teaching? Where everyone teaches everyone? No, it's like, it's kind of like the Rudolf Steiner model, I think, where basically the children are as much in charge as the adults. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Pandora just sagely placed a grape in her mouth. (laughs) Adam Buxton does, you know, quiz her on that and, and does have his kind of reservations on that as a father of three children. But her... Her counter-arguments are pretty robust, I think, and she's obviously done a lot of research. She's obviously just a very, very intelligent, thoughtful person, and I really enjoyed the conversation uh, with a woman who's learned and experienced a lot in a very short lifespan so far. Daisy Buchanan wrote a piece called I Tried to Stop Eating My Feelings and Now I Have Too Many Feelings, which I read on Medium. I loved this incredibly honest account of how complicated and multi-layered and what an emotional upheaval um, weight loss and quite extreme weight loss can be. Daisy spent the last six months very steadily and healthily I should say as a caveat losing a substantial amount of weight Um, and she describes in the piece how she thought that losing that weight and the promise of becoming a new person and maybe a new life that that would offer would make her instantly happy. Instead, she says it made her realise how long she had been using food as an emotional anaesthetic and how when that was removed from her day-to-day life, the hardest part of weight loss was not the discipline or the lifestyle change, but having to sit with the pain and discomfort of her feelings. Quoting the piece, we need to live for our future selves up to a point. We need to believe in our dreams and projects and find some motivation beyond doing the work for its own sake we think we could all be happier it is very hard to resist the rhetoric that tells us this will happen when we're wealthier and slimmer it's almost impossible to acknowledge that regardless of the number on your scales or in your bank account you will always get caught in the rain you will always have frustrating interactions with colleagues and the people you love will die losing weight has not protected me from pain it has probably exposed me to more pain because i've only been able to do it by not using food as a numbing distraction Right now, I'm not just grieving for the imaginary woman. I'm mourning the me of six months ago whose dumb lizard brain believed that all of my sadness could be solved if I stopped eating bread. 
but I'm also excited for me now. I'm starting to realise we can't wait around for permission to become who we'd like to be. Technically, I'm still overweight and it's tempting to see my body as a problem that still needs to be solved, a task to be completed. In so many pounds, I'll be done and then I can learn the bass guitar and buy new kitchenware and pitch for the work I want and finish reading Anna Karenina. But facts aren't feelings. My weight will always be a number. It will not make me any more competent, successful or musical. However, I do know that I didn't lose the weight in a week and I won't finish Anna Karenina in one sitting. If we want to bring our imaginary future selves to life, we have to keep rising to meet them. There is no accomplishment that will cure us of being human. We can do anything as long as we abandon the expectation that our achievements will protect us from feeling anything. Wow, brilliant. It's a stunning piece of writing and I thought it was a really honest look at the effects and causes of weight loss and the other thing she talks about without shame while acknowledging it might make people angry is that she is glad she's lost weight and she feels for her it was the right choice and anyone who knows and loves Daisy's books and journalism of which I've been familiar with for nearly a decade will know that Daisy is an advocate for body positivity and always has been and it's very clear to me that she still is and that her personal weight loss has no effect on how passionately she believes in inclusivity of a range and acceptance of all different body types in media, fashion and culture. And I think sometimes there's a sense that to have things about your body that you would like to change or to have your own personal trauma and history with your body means that you're somehow being pointedly and personally negative toward larger bodies or that your body is somehow meant to reflect how you feel about all bodies or just like exactly the social representation of bodies which is a lot of um like weight pun intended to pile onto any one woman i agree and and i don't think that it means that it's that you're working against body positivity or you're saying everyone should want for themselves precisely what you have i personally reject that as an idea with any sort of logic and i think there are so many more damaging ways in which the movement of body to positivity, which I think is wonderful and beautiful and I wish had been, had been around when I was a teenager, there are so many other ways that that is under threat or being undermined or negated by men and women. And I think Daisy's piece is a really balanced look at a woman's one woman's tumultuous relationship with food um, and a sharing of her own personal story and where she is in her journey now, while still acknowledging that thinness doesn't equate happiness or self-acceptance. I think definitely as well, we've all been um, subject to this idea that once you get to a certain place that your life will change. She's writing very specifically mm. about weight and body, but Brian Gordon was very funny recently about being like, I got married and I had a child and life was still the same. Yeah. And I've definitely done that um, before of thinking, well, when I'm this person mm. or when I have this or when I've done this, mm. I'm going to feel so fucking fantastic. And as someone that's now achieved loads of like on paper big life goals, yeah. um, I'm not necessarily, by the way, saying that these are things to be proud of. I'm saying that these are things that society would say you'd be proud of. But yeah. getting married yeah. um, and things you personally house, wanted for yourself, yeah. having a baby, getting a book deal. I'm still exactly the same person. I still have exactly the same anxieties, you know. And I'm sure you feel like this about stuff. You don't sit there and think, oh my God, I've nailed it now. I've solved all of my emotional um, vacancies and mm. and so Daisy's writing about something that people feel in myriad ways um, but she's writing it brilliantly and I think regardless of your size we all know that feeling of um, eating to fill an emotional hole you know mm. I go straight for the roast beef monster munch when I'm feeling anxious you know, I actually don't know if we all do know that feeling I think lots of people don't have that relationship with food at all and maybe this article will make no sense to them but I think you know Catelyn Moran's written about it extensively before for a lot of people not just women it's heroin that you can buy at the corner shop and i think yeah maybe all right i've just assumed because she has that and you have that and i have that that it is a universal thing but you're right some people when they feel really upset go the other way yeah so actually it's not something everyone knows anyway that sounds like a brilliant piece thank you I also adored Eva Wiseman's column on the unsung benefits and the essentialness of small talk. She explores how, in this age of authenticity, small talk is often sneered at as something that people just can't do. I mean, I hear people say that all the time. I have to say, I have 
many failings when it comes to social performance and social situations but I've always been very proud of the ease in which I can waffle about absolutely fucking nothing see I felt quite humbled by this piece because I hate small talk it makes really? me really really anxious I'm alright yeah. with it I try and go straight in now with how is your head and your heart so that I can skip <laughs> skip the weather and transport small talk anyway it was I a great I, piece sometimes but... I don't think I know how to talk about anything else um but yes, yeah, so this uh, piece explores how small talk puts people at ease um, and is often the gateway into bigger talk. The art of small talk has many disciplines, she writes. There is the small talk of bus routes among a family, their performances of being different yet the same played out in journeys across their shared corner of town. There is the small talk of a first date where questions about the weather offer opportunities for strangers to relax into a shared language, one that will reveal staircases to climb down into deeper conversation later. There is the small talk of parties, a social lubricant comparable to a large icy drink. There is the smallest talk possible in Instagram comments, the daily validations of friends with fire symbols and hearts. All is valuable, all is essential. She goes on to describe how, for many women, the importance of small talk is so obvious because we are raised to think that our conversation should accommodate others rather than just impress others or relay facts and information. And, you know, sneering at small talk means sneering at a lot of the conversational legwork that are often, that's often left for women to do. I've said this before, we're often the ones who are given the steering wheel to drive the kind of conversational vehicle and help keep everything buoyant and afloat. And I have to say, you really notice it as a single woman when you're dating a lot. So I think to undermine the importance of it is to undermine um, a lot of a lot of work that people do that it doesn't like it's not something that I massively enjoy or find hugely riveting but I often see women in a room whether it be my mum and her friends or in a work environment or in a boardroom where it is it's left down to a woman to keep things ticking along and that shouldn't be uh you know that's work for a woman as well that's not something we find totally natural and enjoyable she ends by saying I understand the feeling that in 2019 connection is rare and important and that small talk is seen as a threat to it. But unfortunately, bowling up to a stranger and asking whether their mother really loved them is rude. <laughs> the foreplay of complimenting their shoes is essential. These hell chats have a place in creating pockets of companionship, educating ourselves about how our fellow humans communicate. And so I lean into them and ask questions about butter. Because as we continue to cleave from each other, finding new and ever grittier cracks of division, the small shared moments of weather, buses, telly and cake play an ever larger part. Hell chats. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought it was a classic Eva Wiseman column, measured, thoughtful, equally political and very human and just beautifully written. Well, we need her more than ever because Hadley Freeman has selfishly taken a maternity leave. <laughs> I don't know why women think they need maternity leave. It's totally unnecessary. So, um, you know, thank goodness we still got Eva right. <laughs> Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. It's now time for our author special. Nimco Ali is an anti-FGM campaigner and co-founder of The Five Foundation, the global coalition to end FGM. She has been instrumental in changing legislation around the practice of FGM in the UK and abroad, including co-founding Daughters of Eve in 2010 and getting it into the Children's Act in 2019. Nimco was awarded both the UN Women's Rights Award at the Geneva Summit this year and most recently an OBE along with Dr Leila Hussein for her efforts to end FGM. 
And now she has written a book about being a chief fanny defender, her words, what we are told not to talk about, but we're going to anyway. Women's Voices from East London to Ethiopia, where Nimco has interviewed 42 women from 14 different countries about their bodies and the things that we don't know or don't talk enough about. It's a beautiful book. There's such a wide range of uplifting, but often heartbreaking stories, covering everything from forced marriage to birth, the menopause to period poverty, and many more stories which made us cry and think in equal measure. Congratulations, Nimco, and welcome to the Hilo. What made you want to write what we're told not to talk about? I, I, I talk to women all the time, and I think that's my main thing, where we talk about oversharing is that I just sit around in corners and just start talking about things. And I say, I want to talk about how how things so how many things we have in common and how the fact that the vagina is this place where we're not meant to talk about but but what we do on a day-to-day basis but in different ways and for me as somebody that's been so public about my own anatomy let's just have conversations about the four things that really connect us and i think if you're a woman periods um menopause pregnancies and orgasms are like you know key things within our lifetime within our, yeah within our space and for any of our listeners who may be unfamiliar with exactly what FGM is and why it still takes place, can you describe what it means? So FGM stands for female genital mutilation. So ultimately, it's the non-medical like cutting or damage to the female anatomy. So in that context, it means that if you do have injury to the anatomy caused by an accident or you have cancer, then to cause mutilation of the anatomy is a medical necessity. But for FGM, which is affects 200 million women in the world right now, but those 200 million women um, are between 14 and 49. Again, that's an interesting stat because we only look at women's um, abilities and, and how we support them around FGM if they're still fertile. So those are fertility, like, you know, so we're not looking at girls who are under 14 or women who are in their menopause. Um, so yeah, so it's female genital mutilation. There are four different types of FGM, but, but I never grade them. I never say this is worse than the other. Mm. They are all completely unnecessary. And I think as survivors, every woman has the ability to tell her own story. And that's one of the key things for me is that my FGM happened so out of context, but it was still, it's just like an unnecessary brutal act. Type one is a clitidectomy, so, and because a lot of the people that carry out FGM are not medically trained, mm-hmm. these are just kind of like, you know, broad interpretations of what women could um, um, could go through. So type one is called the clitidectomy, so it's the removal either of the hood of the clitoris or the external part of it. And one of the key things that I always say to people is that there's 80% of the clitoris is internal, so they don't remove all the clitoris, they just remove the external part um type two is the removal of the clitoris again the external part and some of the labia and type three which is the most invasive is when they do one and two or they might just do um two just removing the um the lips and then pull everything else together and stitch it up and that's called infibulation which is very common where i'm from in like you know somaliland and in my country 98 percent of women have undergone fgm and um infibulation is very common in that and then Type four is like, you know, any other non-graded forms of like, you know, so whether it's stretching, pricking, so any kind of fucking shit you think of doing to the um, vagina for no medical reasoning. I was so shocked by that statistic, uh, 90%, 98% of girls women, yeah. being cut. As both a victim of and a campaigner to end FGM, genital mutilation is at the core of many of the stories in your book. And last year, the first ever prosecution against FGM happened when a little girl called Decker bled to death. You regularly debunk the assumption on Twitter that FGM is a Muslim practice. No, you say it's child abuse. And I was interested to see you tweet recently, I get so much hate for what I do. What assumptions about FGM and what kind of education did you want this book to challenge and provide? And what kind of serious issues do you face as a campaigner? Yeah, so I think in terms of the book, I really wanted it, I really wanted other women to understand that just because you've had FGM, it doesn't mean that you can't communicate with, with women like me. So there's a reality of the fact that if, you, if you're a Caucasian woman or a South Asian woman, you can still relate to somebody who's had FGM. So I want to just kind of bring that commonality between women saying mm. FGM is something that happens to certain women, but everything else is still what happens to women. So whether it's period of poverty or the ability to enjoy sex and so on. And But ultimately as well, in terms of my campaigning, it, it was very, very difficult because there's it was interesting that FGM was meant to break me, it's meant to make me silent, but it made me the loudest person in the room. And I honestly had no interest in my anatomy until I had FGM. So it's quite interesting the fact that if they didn't want me to talk about my vagina, they should have just left it alone. I didn't even know I had a vagina 
uh, and, and it was different to my uncles and my brothers who um, w- were around. So for me, it was trying to get it was it was trying to appease a lot of guilt actually because I don't I don't like you know I didn't set out campaigning to say oh I want to change the world I want to change the legislation I just saw a girl that was hyperventilating and falling apart because my silence was so complicit to the misunderstanding that this was a cultural issue that happened far away and for me I was talked at and talked about for a long time because I didn't I lived in the UK before FGM and I came back with FGM after after a holiday and I really wanted somebody just to tell me it was okay, like I was going to be okay, that this was wrong and there was nothing wrong with me and none of that really happened and I just thought I felt really othered and it was the first time that I felt like I wasn't British enough and obviously then I felt I wasn't Somali enough because I was the only person out of my friends that thought it was really weird and kept on pushing and kept on challenging it. So I really wanted to just kind of um, let women that women understand each other and also let the world know that FGM doesn't happen through ignorance. It's an organised crime. Every single person that I grew up with. So when I was growing up in Cardiff, every single girl that I knew was having FGM. Every Somali girl that I knew was having FGM. And it was this whole point of like, there was a, there was a whole kind of conspiracy in the sense that the police knew, social services knew, but my community played a really good trick of like, we've just come from civil war you can't really attack us on this issue like so that you know, would happen in somaliland on a holiday and then so basically no, so so they were um taking these girls to dubai so somaliland had fallen and the war was kind of very active in the late 80s and the early 90s so these girls were being taken to manchester or they were being taken to um or they were being taken to dubai and they were quite old they were like in their teens so i was seven so i remember the, my mother and everybody else having a conversation about the fact that oh are you going to do the girls and she's like oh no we did them before we came back so it was a very open conversation yeah. around the issue around FGM and I think every single person knew and for me it wasn't like it wasn't the fact that I wasn't actually that angry with, with, with my community I was I was more angry with people who had the duty of care to me who just didn't actually give a shit and I just thought like what the hell is going on so when I was 11 and I collapsed in school and I was taken to a major hospital with with like closed kidney failure. I was thinking, you you can see what my anatomy looks like. Like, are you not going to do anything about it? And I think that was more painful than the actual act of FGM was this thing of being dismissed. And when I started to campaign, I think I was campaigning from that perspective of still being an 11 year old, still being a seven year old, still trying to say that if this was happening today, I would want somebody to kind of step in and do something about it. And is it different today? Those communities that you grew up in in Cardiff, do you see a change now? So there are going to be six FGM clinics that are going to be opened up in England. Wales doesn't have any FGM clinics and it has one of the largest Somali populations and Heath Hospital and St David's Hospital would always, the midwives are saying we need FGM clinics in these services. But the but the political party that runs there wants the vote, so it won't do anything around FGM. So my, my Cardiff friends have their defibrillations in on, on the King's Road in um, at the Chelsea and Westminster Hospital. And I think the idea, the fact that you have to travel outside of Wales in order mm-hmm. to get some access, and then sometimes some of these girls just feel like they have to be grateful for the fact that they're getting something that they pay taxes for. The beating heart of the book is the collection of incredibly honest and often incredibly moving personal accounts from 42 women about their experience experiences um, with their bodies. How did you find these women and what was the interviewing process like? So I spoke to, in, to- in total I spoke to about like 152 women. Like I, I did 152 interviews and it was that whole thing just of- travelling constantly. Yeah, because I was doing, I was doing a lot of like, when I travel um, on FGM stuff, it's like when I'm talking to women, I don't differentiate between the first lady to um, to like, you know, the woman that, that's selling fruit and veg on, on the streets of like, you know, um, Ghana or Burkina Faso and all these things. And even once you, once you're open, I think everybody else wants to be open with you as well. You explore something which can be nothing short of truly agonising, giving birth as a woman who has been genitally mutilated. Ayan suffers a fourth degree tear which leads to a fistula, leaving her doubly incontinent in agony and shunned by her entire family, including her husband, who left her. And it took 25 years for her to get given the help she needs. And devastatingly, you write, it's an operation which takes just 30 minutes. Mm. 
So fistula, I think this is so, um, fistula is very common um, with with women who, who've had FGM, also places where there's not maternal health in the sense that you don't know what you're doing, there's no um, midwives and everything else. So it's like, it's, it's, a, it's a tear basically. And women in the UK are prevented from suffering it because of the fact that we have the NHS. And then if you do, you get the services. So there are about three to 400 like, you know, surgeries every year that are kind of performed. There's an actual international fistula day that the UN has because it's such a massive issue. And it's not only just a massive issue with FGM, it's also a massive issue with um, child marriage, which I really want to change that name to like rape or whatever. Like, you know, yeah. it's, not, it's not really marriage or either we find a different name for consensual adult relationships. Um, but yeah, so the fact that ch- like, you know, girls are so young and like, you know, they're, they're unable to carry these um, um, fetuses to term. And then those, fe- they just basically just come in tearing out. I haven't given birth, but it's quite horrifying to think about that and yeah and nobody and she was so the whole point is like these women are kind of gripped by shame because they don't have the knowledge to understand that this is nothing to do with them and this is nothing and this is it specifically comes from fgm so it's this vicious cycle of the fact that she's suffering for something that was needless she, she didn't have to go through fgm and the idea that she never gets to have any more children she never gets to be loved and she is just like they're looking on onto her kids and it was in somaliland where i met her and i just thought there's a there's a, a incredible woman called Edna Arden who runs um like you know fistula services and and clinics and every year something they like you know they bring these women and these women come with their like you know from the outskirts with their belongings just to be healed and it's it's really really sad but in the same time is the fact that they get a new lease of life. Was the multiplicity of birth stories really important to you? It, it it was because it's not just one thing and also it was the whole thing was about pregnancy because I, I think it's not about the baby and I think that's one of the key things is that we've all like you know either some people are longing for a baby because like one of the girls who like you know can't have children and she's and again another Somali girl and the fact that there's the community kind of like judgment on that and it's the whole point of I think everybody assumes you can get pregnant until you try to get pregnant and you can't or everybody thinks they want a baby until they get pregnant and they don't want the baby so I wanted to just kind of show the complexities of that and so I wanted to talk about those things and I also want to talk about the fact about the idea of a perfect mum and my um, auntie gave like the best advice to my um, sister-in-law she said in the first six months if you don't throw yourself or the baby out the window you're doing a great job yeah I loved that when she said that to this woman that was just desperate yeah and and that's and that's for me I think that's like an incredible advice is the fact that it's like it's like you know success is not what you see on the tv ads all these things success is like whatever it means to you to every woman one of the stories that struck me the most is from becky a teenager who lives on the streets about what it's like to get your period when you can't afford sanitary care and there's a devastating moment where her napkins fall out of her trousers and the security guard in the supermarket tells her she's disgusting and to get out and then mary her guardian angel comes along and shows her how to make a makeshift sanitary pad out of cardboard and plastic because as she says uh, tampons are health risks because how do you dispose of them when you don't have regular access to a bathroom and you live on the streets what do you think we don't know or don't talk enough about when it comes to period poverty that is literally the access to toilets access to sanitation and so one of the kind of key things in in the in the world is and i was saying to somebody that is that we need to end fgm we need to educate girls and we need to give the world access to toilets because for women it changes their lives and 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 in india at the moment where women are asking as part, as part of their dowry payment for, for for a toilet to be built so if she if she if she's going to get married to a guy from a village and there's no toilets or there's a shared toilet and she wants a specific toilet and in the West, if you look at it, like, you know, even in London, the last hundred years since we've had actual sanitation and real sewage system and everything else, the trajectory of lives women has gone up. So we just don't talk about the power of um, of sanitation. Yeah. In the introduction of your penultimate chapter, before you speak about the menopause, you talk about your own experience of your body now. You write... Now, in my 30s, I feel more powerful, confident and sure of myself. I've had enough periods to fill a bathtub and have some idea of what's going on down there. I've enjoyed plenty of orgasms and I look at a way a friend's children play and explore with that total lack of self-consciousness. I think that maybe I might want my own. Overall, I kind of feel like I'm at my peak. Could you tell us a bit more about how you got to that place of empowerment and acceptance when it comes to your kind of own body and womanhood and what would and what you would say to any of our listeners who are struggling to find that kind of sense of peace yeah 
I think I think it was like um, I think it was my grandmother being ill and kind of. I think it's just growth. It was, it was 35 was the kind of like the worst year of my life, also the best year of my life where I kind of realised I was I was grown up enough. I I'd, I'd kind of understood that I understood my period and my body. I understood like, you know, what I wanted in a guy. So yeah, I think it was just this thing of like, just like, I kind of finally gave into the fact of just like living in the moment. And I don't think I've ever lived in the moment. I've, I've always either pre-planned or regretted so yeah. so when I was younger I was like when I was in primary school I was thinking about doing my 11 plus when I was in my 11 plus I was like thinking about my A-levels GCSEs and all those things and I remember actually the first kind of thing was like in my third year of law school and I sat there and I was like fuck I got into law school and I'm about to finish like, what do I do with my life um and then I just decided then like you know met a boy and then it was, anyway everything I think do you know what to be honest I stopped self-sabotaging and that's what you do. It's like every time something's going well, you think you don't deserve it, and then you just kind of do these kind of things. You just start, like you know, start to self sabotage, and you and then you play on the little failures again and again. So I've just stopped doing that. I've stopped self sabotaging. I've stopped like you know making myself feel incredibly guilty for not always being perfect. And I think that was I think that was the thing. It was like accepting that I was never going to be the image that my mother wanted me to be. But then in a weird way, I think she's kind of happy with who I am. So just like accepting that when my grandmother leaves, if I survive, then I think I can survive anything. Mm. And I think that's what it was. I think it just seemed like, yeah, it's just surviving the hardest thing that has ever happened to me has just kind of made me realise, oh shit, it doesn't have to be that bad. You don't always have to be thinking about the most horrible things happening. And then you also don't have to limit yourself um, to it. So yeah, I think it was. Just, I think it's like a lot of forgiveness and a lot of work and a lot of the, like, you know, accepting that today is not going to come again, so you might as yeah. well um, enjoy it. This entire book is an empathetic education, but I was really struck by your statistics on the menopause. The highest rate of suicide in women, you write, is between the ages of 50 and 54, and the average age of menopause is 51. My parents as well were really shocked when I relayed that to them this weekend. I really valued that you set aside so much space for this, one quarter of your book, because it isn't something that we see getting given that space. Were you surprised what you learned about the menopause from the women you interviewed? Yeah, I was surprised. And again, that's what I felt really bad about asking these women because again, if we talk about it, then we don't have to fear it. And we should embrace it. And I and I think that whole point of about fertility and we have and fertility is a massive conversation in 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 the, in the sense of how we define it. Men can be fertile up to their death, like if they live to a hundred and fifty, and women obviously their their peak ends at, um, at their forties. And we don't fear the menopause, and we also don't relegate women who are menopausal to just like or oh, a has been or whatever it is. That these are incredible women who like my grandmother should be seen as like you know the anchors of the community i found the last chapter of the book incredibly rousing in it you write there is a validation in shared experience and sheer bloody relief women have always shared intimate details a man glancing at a group of women howling with laughter over a bottle of wine might well shiver because yes they probably are discussing how crap their exes were in bed and later after another bottle they'll share puking and pooing birth stories a man, on the other hand, can work with another man for 40 years and not know if he even has kids. I think that is such a good note to end your wonderful book on, acknowledging the catharsis mm. and the community that can come with the commonality and the shared universal experience of womanhood. Your book deals with traumatic, grave, at times horrifying things. But did you find this process of listening and learning and sharing to be a reassuring and bonding one? Yeah, it did. And it was, and I think we do do that as women is that even when you go into our toilets, because we have to wait for so long to get into a cubicle, we start talking about things, we start sharing makeup, lipsticks and night, and then that really connects us and stuff. For me, I think what's been the most powerful thing is that I've learned to really respect my mother in a different way and actually just see her as a woman. I think that's the most powerful thing is to have these conversations about women as women and the women that we love in our lives and we we sometimes put them on a pedestal and expect them to be superhuman when they are just incredibly like us and and from there was one there was a there was a girl from Pakistan who when she's like when I just met my mother like I just, for, for, for the first time I saw my mother as a woman I can I can kind of like you know accept the flaws of my mother and accept my flaws as well and kind of hopefully come together and as these two different generations but yet two sides of the same coin I mm. hope 
Nimco, thank you so much for coming on the Hilo. What we're told not to talk about is an essential, enlightening, educational force for good, as are you, and we're so thrilled to have spoken to you. What we're told not to talk about, but we're going to anyway, is out on June the 27th. Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other people find us and helps boost us in the charts. You can email us, thehiloshow at gmail.com or tweet us at thehiloshow. Bye-bye. Bye.